welcome. We're here to talk about overseas lending by the Chinese government, a, a topic very much on the minds these days of people who think about international finance. It seems that every conversation about Chinese lending, or at least any conversation in the West, has a few things in common. At first, there's this tendency to lump together all lending by the government itself, by the central bank, by pretty much any state-owned company, all sort of lumped together as official debt. Second, the, the conversation eventually winds up being about transparency or, or the lack of it. Uh, sometimes that's a fair criticism directed at the fact that much of China's lending practices go unreported. But sometimes it's a pretext by people who want to obscure their own self-interested motives. So example there might be private investors who refuse to talk about giving poor countries debt relief, supposedly because they can't make up their minds unless they know more about Chinese lending. And then third, talk about Chinese lending, especially the Belt and Road Initiative, often winds up um, asking what the real strategic interests are that supposedly underlie China's lending practices, including maybe the interest in having control over valuable territory. Despite all these sort of common tendencies, until recently, there wasn't a great sense of what China's lending practices actually were. And that's changing to the point that these days, quite a bit more is known, although Mitu and I don't necessarily know any of it, but our guest today does. Our guest, we're really excited to have Pippa Morgan, a political scientist at Duke Kunshan University and a specialist in China's foreign economic relations. So welcome, Pippa. Thanks for, for joining us. Thank you so much to both of you for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, I hope we can start by... Um, uh, with a topic that you were kind enough to point out to, to me, I hadn't realized that, um, that it had been released, but there was a white paper released quite recently by the Chinese government describing China's overseas lending practices uh, from the government's perspective. And I, I thought maybe we could begin with a fairly simple question or what, uh, what I hope is a simple question. Is this white paper a, a big deal? Does it have surprises? Um, what should we make of this? Thanks. Um, yes. So this to, sh to answer your question in short, the white paper is a reasonably big deal, but it did, did not deliver some of the things that um, especially researchers and observers of Chinese development finance were looking for, specifically around more concrete uh, data on um, Chinese development assistance. However, it was um, a relatively big deal, politically speaking. And in particular, um, for the, this conversation, the main takeaway that I'd like to highlight is it points very much to a reframing um, of China's development cooperation away from this kind of very pragmatic approach and an emphasis on mutual benefits um, to a kind of moral justification grounded in Chinese traditional philosophy, which is a very you know, new kind of grounding or framing of Chinese development finance. Uh, since the 1980s, it's been very um, explicit about being pragmatic. And so being intended to also provide concrete benefits for the Chinese side. So for example, 
um, Chinese overseas lending is a very important way in which Chinese state-owned engineering firms receive contracting opportunities abroad, or for example, um, for securing access to oil in exchange for lending for infrastructure projects. So these very kind of um, pragmatic reasons for providing finance to other countries. Um, so it looks like the framing at least is moving in a, a different direction, in a new direction. Um, I'm not really sure what the practical impact of this will be yet. Um, if we're thinking about Chinese philosophy, I'm not sure Confucius himself thought very much about development finance, but it does point to the importance of remembering that Chinese lending behavior has not been fixed over time. So China's actually been um, providing assistance to other countries for a very long time. And under the Mao era, for example, it was very, it was not this kind of pragmatic thing. Instead, it was much more ideological. Um, so we may just be at, this white paper may be a sign that we're at one of those kind of change points again, um, and things may look different in future. But today, of course, we can talk about what um, Chinese lending looks like now. Yeah, and I, and I wonder if maybe that's the, the next logical place to go. If you could just give us a, a sort of bird's eye view of what that that lending looks like. And maybe in the course of that, one of the things I'm interested in is whether this tendency to treat all Chinese lenders as agents of the state is sound, whether there are some cracks in that, in that way of thinking. Um, so maybe that's, that's something you could help us think through as well. Sure, of course. So I think there are a couple of questions there. First is, where is Chinese lending going? Um, and the second one is relating to these, um, the different actors involved and their interests and how to, how to treat them. Um, so I'll take the first one first. So for quite a long time, it's been very difficult to kind of work out where Chinese lending is going and how much there is. Because as I mentioned, while China itself publishes in these white papers, very kind of broad official statistics. Um, it doesn't publish detailed information on how much it loans to different countries each year, like many other creditors do. And um, we can talk more about the transparency issue later, because that is, in, what, in my view, one of the main reasons why Chinese lending attracts suspicion. Um, so there have been various different research organizations that have tried to kind of fill this data gap. But without this kind of very systematic and ideally official information, these have all had some, some limitations. But one of the best sources, in my opinion, is something published very recently in October 2012, which is this kind of treasure trove of new data from the World Bank's debt reporting system on the amounts of debt held by low and middle income countries reported by those countries. And crucially, this data has now been broken down by creditor. So we can see which borrower countries owe money to entities in which creditor countries. So on the China question, the, the World Bank data show that from 2000 to 2019, China's provided over 286 billion US dollars in official loan, loan commitments. Um, and Chinese entities also provided 21 billion US dollars in private loan commitments. Exactly um, as, I, as we'll come on to, there's a question in the Chinese case about how you define official and private and what official actually means. So, and it's not clear from these data, you know, how 
um, to break that down into more, more clarity, but you, certainly you can see that the official numbers is very large. So to put that in, in global context, total official bilateral Chinese lending from, sorry, total official bilateral lending uh, from all creditors was $1,114 billion. So China's kind of a quarter of official bilateral lending. So on the question of where does it go, um, the largest borrower was at Angola, which is not at all a surprise um, to, or to me anyway, <laughs> um, because China's offering uh, of infrastructure loans to Angola is in exchange for oil supplies is quite well known. What is not so well known about that actually is it, it replicates a model which was used by China and Japan um, in the 1970s in which Japan got oil supplies in exchange for financing Chinese infrastructure and for ass assisting Chinese development. Other major borrowers from China include in order Pakistan, which is a very uh, strong political ally of China, has been for a long time, Brazil, Ecuador, and Ethiopia. Um, in Africa specifically, which is my own area of focus, Chinese lending is really driven by a mix of motives. So I just mentioned oil in Angola, um, but Ethiopia, China's second largest, largest borrower on the continent, has um, actually very, very, very few natural resources. But what it does have on the other hand is a very, very large and fast growing domestic market in which a lot of Chinese companies are keen to get involved in. And loans for infrastructure projects kind of provide opportunities, contracting opportunities for these companies to get away into the country and lead to more investment later down the line. So on terms, um, it's pretty hard to find accurate systematic information on the kind of big general picture of, of Chinese loan terms. Broadly speaking, it provides three categories. So the largest being non-concessional loans at commercial rates. Um, then there are also con concessional loans and the smallest being interest-free loans. If we take the very limited information available in the most recent white paper, um, it said that from 2013 to 2018, um, around only 1.8 billion of these loans were interest-free. So really, really small proportion of the overall total. So on the, the second question, and please feel free to jump in if I'm going on for too long, but the, the question about um, how to treat these different actors, I think is really important. Um, and I think it's a very perceptive question because there's a tendency among people not so familiar with China to think about China as this kind of mono, big, scary, monolithic block with the central leadership at the top kind of directing everything. Um, but as the question alludes to, there are various different types of entities involved in Chinese lending. And I think of them as a kind of spectrum from the political or strategic to the commercial. So if we take the former end of the spectrum first, the interest-free loans are actually provided by the government, so by the Ministry of Commerce. Um, so as a government agency is naturally more oriented towards the the political um, or strategic angle. Um, in the middle, we have the policy banks. So the China Export Import Bank um, offers concessional loans 
and commercial loans and aims to break even. So it kind of sits in this middle gray area between the, the political or strategic and the commercial. And also kind of within this gray area is the, uh, or this, this middle space is the China Development Bank, which is a policy bank, but it offers only commercial loans and very much tries to frame itself as a commercial actor. By commercial loan, I mean um, a loan at not a, a concessional interest rate. And so these two banks are very much the, by far the, the biggest and most important Chinese lenders. Then finally, you have um, the commercial banks, which uh, by that I mean um, non-policy banks. So they may be state-owned, but they're not policy banks. And contractors, which are essentially these gigantic engineering firms, um, which most of them are, are state-owned, but some of them are, are private, have, have been restructured. And, but despite the ownership structure, this, this final category of lenders, the non-policy banks and the contractors are, are really focused on making money and they have huge and intense competition between themselves, especially the, the contractors, right? Their managers are under enormous pressure. Pippa, so, can I just step in and um, ask you uh, a clarificatory question of on course. all of this, it, and it it it's in in some ways goes back to the white paper and its uh, attempt to portray a a different philosophy of Chinese overseas lending than at least I had always uh, thought of, which was a much more pragmatic and commercial uh, view. And I'm wondering whether or not part of the, the new image is related to an attempt to deal with the legal significance of what type of lending you're engaged in. And as background, at least the background that Mark and I come to this with, if it's official lending, uh, then typically the rules or at least the, the norms for restructuring in a crisis tend to be different. Even though China is not officially a member of the Paris Club, it would be expected that China would follow the terms of the Paris Club, which is sort of rich countries lending to uh, poorer countries in this sort of aid format. On the other hand, if China's lending is private and commercial lending, then uh, China goes down the path of the private creditors. And then essentially it negotiates its own restructuring terms. And I'm wondering whether this portrayal of Chinese lending as development aid is about trying to shape which box uh, they fall in. But I also, it also occurs to me that maybe this is not what is uh, motivating any of this. And it just, I'm sorry to go on, but I, I can't help but want to use your deep knowledge of uh, the, the politics of all of this uh, to see whether or not you think there is a connection here 
to the 1960s and 1970s when in the West, there was a lot of uh, brouhaha about, oh, um, the Eastern Bloc uh, uh, communist countries were using the, using the veil of uh, state-owned enterprises to take advantage of state immunity uh, in order to give themselves uh, an advantage in dealings with the Western world. And so then, of course, we had big changes in the laws of state immunity. And this, this from an untutored perspective, this recent drama over Chinese lending, whether it's official or commercial, seems very much a replay of uh, those 1960s, 1970s debates. That is a fascinating question. And it's, I have to admit, it's not one that I've thought about before. And I guess that's one of the great things about having kind of this dialogue between political scientists and um, legal scholars. So I, I am not aware of any um, efforts by China, the Chinese government, to um, try to reshape whether or not Chinese finance or the kind of category that Chinese finance fits in. But I think your question speaks to a more kind of important um, issue when we're thinking about uh, Chinese lending to other countries is that a lot of the, the status of the major actors and especially the Export Import Bank and the Development Bank, um, it's not very easy to see how they should be categorized, right? So um, especially the China Development Bank, which is a policy bank. Um, so it has a, a kind of mandate from the government, but it offers commercial loans, right? So um, what is that? Is that should that go in the official box? Should it go in the private box? And if we look at, for example, some of the discussions relating to China and the, the COVID-19 debt relief, we can see, or I can see, um, I personally am, am uncertain and others are uncertain about whether or not the China Development Bank is really seen as or treated as a um, in that official box. And so having to follow the the G20, um, the recent G20 um, plans for, uh, for debt relief or debt suspension, um, or whether or not it's treated more as a private actor. Um, it's, it's really quite, quite difficult to see. So I think um, the rise of China as uh, one of the most important actors in, um, in the development finance world coupled with the fact that China is a mixed economy where the state has you know, a very, very important role, but a lot of the, the entities involved also have commercial motives, kind of presents a bigger challenge for making this very neat distinction between the official and the private. It's actually very hard to do that in the Chinese context. And Pippa, can, can we, um, I think, uh, after our break, we may want to get into the topic of Chinese lending to Africa in particular. And so I'm wondering if as a way of setting that discussion up right before our break, we can just get your thoughts in general on objections 
to the lack of transparency in Chinese lending. So um, just as some of the subtext for that, as I was alluding to at the very beginning, um, you know, investors who didn't seem to give a damn one way or the other about transparency or lack of transparency or the amount of Chinese lending um, at the time they invested now raise the lack of transparency as a key barrier to having meaningful debt restructuring talks. And, and I think um, sort of that's one of the things we may get to after the break. But I'm wondering what your sense is of the disclosure of Chinese loans and of these this transparency criticism in particular. What is it that motivates the decision by the Chinese government to disclose some aspects of its lending program and not, not others? Can we maybe start with that sort of general question before break? Sure, of course. Um, so I think in general, Chinese institutions tend to be reticent to release information um, for fear of kind of political repercussions. And in this case, I think that um, worries about uh, public perceptions of too much money going to other countries actually likely plays a role. By that, I mean Chinese public opinion. So, um, you know, China is still technically a developing country um, that doesn't feel like that where I am sitting in Shanghai. But if I was to go to, you know, some of the provinces in, in the West um, or the center of the country, that would very much be how it feels. And so there is a kind of sense among um, uh, Chinese, um, certainly among some segments of Chinese uh, public opinion that China shouldn't be giving lots of money to, <laughs> to other, other countries. And um, on the, the kind of your, your point about um, lenders uh, or certain lenders not or investors not having cared about Chinese transparency at the time and then um, kind of now bringing this up at this point when there's a discussion about the, the burdens within the debt relief debate. Um, I do think that this is kind of used as a, a negotiating tool but on the other hand I do have sympathy with broader concerns about Chinese transparency and that's simply because um, if you don't know where uh, finance is going, then from the perspective of measuring, for example, how it effective it is, you actually can't you know, analyze that if you don't know where it is. Um, so I think that um, there are real reasons to think that it would be very, very helpful if China would follow um, the more established norms, um, for example, among if you're thinking about foreign aid, um, so concessional finance, among the, the OECD Development Assistance Committee of publishing this kind of detailed information on the distribution of official finance. Well, thank you. Let's take a short break. And then when we, when we come back, we can uh, continue the, the conversation. So Pippa, I want us to, in the second half of the podcast, to focus in a little more on your specific area of expertise, which I believe is aid or lending, 
to Africa. And before we get into the details, and Mark and I, because of the class we teach, are particularly interested in countries in debt crisis and how China is going to negotiate this. But I was wondering if you could give us an overview or snapshot of China's involvement in Africa, and, and particularly vis-a-vis the Western aid agencies who used to provide a lot of this aid. And my um, superficial understanding is much of it was sort of the former imperial powers uh, doling out a little bit of aid to their former colonies. And uh, as, as they gradually withdrew uh, their involvement, then China really has, has been the, the one to step in uh, and substitute uh, for that. But this is very simplistic, I realize. And I, I, we'd love your sense before we get into the details of countries like Zambia and Angola. Sure, yeah, so um, it, is worth, uh, it is worth pointing out that China isn't actually a, a kind of new um, development partner for African countries. So the first Chinese aid in Africa was actually um, in 1956. So it has actually been a donor on the continent um, for a very long time. And China's aid program has been um, kind of a, a political kind of pillar of its engagement with Africa for, for decades and decades. And so, for example, China used its aid, pro aid program to um, kind of persuade African countries to support the Chinese entry into the United Nations. So China taking the seat from Taiwan in 1971. Um, having said that, China's lending um, and aid specifically has, of course, grown. Um, much, you know, grown in line with China's own um, economic growth. And it's also changed a lot over time. So actually in the past, Chinese lending was much more, uh, actually, sorry, I, let me rephrase. China's aid was much more, um, almost similar to what the European countries do in terms of providing, um, you know, a grant here and, um, you know, a small interest free here and um, in more oriented towards social sectors like healthcare and education, which is what the, the Western donors tend to favor. And as China has grown, it has, its, its development finance has really diversified a lot. So it's opened up a lot more to, for example, we see most of the loans now are not, now non-concessional. Um, China basically did not give any concessional loans in the past. But having said that, um, the, this kind of historical legacy is still very important. So um, you mentioned Zambia there. So Zambia is one of China's oldest historical friends in Africa. Um, so it was one of the countries in the Tanzania-Zambia railway, which was a project built under the, the Mao period, which was kind of China's flagship um, symbol of cooperation with Africa. And even today, um, if you ask, uh, you know, if you ask an ordinary Chinese person, what do they know about Africa? They'd probably say the Tanzania-Zambia railway. And so these countries that are very old friends of Africa. Um, so I have a, a, a paper with actually my, my PhD supervisor, Professor Yu Zheng, where we found that 
statistically, um, the countries that are these kind of old friends of Africa seem to get, um, still today, um, get more Chinese commercial investment in the country. So these kind of old, old historical um, connections are still, still very important. Um, another thing to mention now is China's um, current uh, approach to lending is very, very different from the Western donors. So the Western donors do not like to fund infrastructure. Um, they do not like to fund things like roads or railways. Um, they much prefer to do things like educational projects or health projects or capacity building, um, which are all great things, of course, but um, China's approach is very different. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, has attracted suspicion, I think. Um, the question of, of the value of this infrastructure lending, um, which personally I think um, in, in many cases can, can do a good job, and I'm happy to say a little bit more about that later, um, is a whole other question. So I'll pause now and see, um, see if you have any more questions, because otherwise to, to talk about whether or not this is a good thing will take me probably another five minutes or so. <laughs> Well, it's actually a really, it's a useful point, I think, to pause, because I wanted to follow up on something we were talking about during the break, which I guess at its simplest level is a question asking you to talk a little bit about the relationship and the differences between Chinese lending practices and the private lenders with whom China is increasingly both um, uh, sort of coming into conflict with uh, and um, sort of uh, uh, providing a, a joint source of funds to, to many of these countries. So what we were talking about is the how it's kind of ironic in some ways that private investors are using the lack of transparency associated with Chinese lending as an excuse not to engage in debt restructuring talks. And, and our understanding is, is that sort of ironically enough, during the discussions at the G20 and discussions about the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, the country that was in some ways most concerned about ensuring private investor participation in debt relief was China. Um, so there's this sort of odd inversion that's gone on where now it's the private investors who are using China as an excuse not to engage in, in um, serious talks about debt relief. So I'm wondering if you can, with that long and uh, I apologize, convoluted setup, if you can tell us a little bit more about how the Chinese government is likely to view debt restructuring talks uh, in Africa in particular, and what role the private sector has in influencing Chinese behavior. Pippa, actually, let me, if you don't mind, can I add my two cents to Mark's? Me too, will clarify my question, hopefully <laughs> in a helpful way. It's not clarification. I, I just um, want to give my own spin on it. And my cynical, cynical spin on it. So, and, um, you know, I, I recall these, these discussions 
that were reported in the press, I think it was Bloomberg has done some of the best reporting here on the, the negotiations, initial negotiations between Zambia and the private creditors and the private creditors jumping up and down and saying, you know, we really need to know whether China is going to participate and uh, we need to know the terms of their lending. And, you know, this causes me to be very suspicious because these are highly sophisticated market actors who didn't seem really to care about the details of Chinese lending when they made their initial loans. They could have asked, they could have said a condition of us lending is we need to know about China, but they weren't worried. In fact, they were probably quite delighted that China was in there because, you know, they probably knew that uh, China, unlike uh, them, was unlikely to run away. I mean, you talk, Pippa, about how China does this infrastructure lending and um, my own sort of anecdotal uh, observation of some of these countries when you go there, you know, China has boots on the ground, uh, not to use the military metaphor, um, but they have people there. They can't withdraw as easily as an investment fund that just pulls its money out. So you should be happy that China is lending because China is going to stay. China should be worried about the private sector running away. And th this sort of connects to, I think, to Mark's uh, puzzle too. I mean, China was the one that was worried about the private sector being involved. So I wonder whether the private sector is just using China as an excuse to not provide relief. My short answer is I definitely uh, agree with your suspicion that the private sector is, is using an ex uh, China as an excuse not to provide relief. Um, so the kind of relationship between um, Chinese lending and private sector lending is um, very interesting in that there's a, a lot of research um, showing that Chinese lending tends to be in contrast to the private sector. While it may be offered, uh, Chinese finance may be offered on commercial terms, it is more um, tolerant of risk and is more long-term than most private sector, uh, than private sector financing in general. Um, so Stephen Kaplan at George Washington University has this great um, analysis of Chinese patient capital. And the argument that actually because it is connected to or um, backed by the state is more willing to kind of take these risks and less willing to run away when things go wrong. Whereas exactly as you said, if something bad happens an investment fund will, um, will just essentially run away. Um, and so, yeah, I, I fully agree with the premise of the question. And um, I think that it makes perfect sense from a Chinese perspective to be uh, really trying to push the private, the, the principle that private, um, private sector creditors also need to participate in um, debt service suspension. However, I do think there's another kind of more pragmatic reason why China would be pushing for um, private sectors to bear a burden. So much of Chinese lending is official. Um, so it goes in that official category. And so basically, you know, uh, is, is required as a principle to participate in um, 
debt relief. Whereas, uh, so it, it's kind of natural for them because a much smaller proportion of Chinese lending would go into that private sector category to want relative to other countries to want um, the private sector lenders to pay a greater proportion of the burden. Pippa, can I interject for just a second? So on that last point, is it really the case that we, the sort of generic cloud of people out there who might be have an interest in this, that we would agree which parts of Chinese lending should have the official hat and which parts of Chinese lending should have the private hat? Like in, I don't think it's quite expressed in this term, but the simplest sort of transparency argument it seems to me that a private investor might make is to say, look, we know Chinese lending comes from a number of different sources and we wanna see them all lined up at the table and we wanna have a voice in which of them are wearing the private sector hat and which of them are wearing, we're gonna make our own decisions about that. And at a minimum, we're gonna expect the private lenders as as we understand them to be included on equal terms um, in a private negotiation over debt restructuring. Is that, if we were to understand the transparency objection that way, is that a awkward conversation for the Chinese government to have? Is that, um, that is to say like, Maybe there's a lot more disagreement about what counts as official and what counts as private than um, than we're letting on. Is that right? I think that makes sense. Um, it, it is partially caused by um, the the major Chinese lenders are is not fully clear whether they are um, essentially providers of should be treated as official or should be treated as private. Um, so for example, if we go, uh, if we go to the, the COVID related debt suspension, um, debt service suspension initiative. So it looks like if we look at the Chinese kind of policy announcements in response to this. So um, China announced uh, in November last year that it has suspended 1.3 billion dollars of, of debt service from official bilateral creditors. And the wording of that appeared to include the Export-Import Bank in this figure, but not the China Development Bank. But then the China Development Bank is also signing um, debt service suspension agreements. So the China Development Bank does seem to be participating, but it's really not clear whether it should be treated as, and this is the most important bank, it is not clear whether it should be treated as, a, as an official actor um, given that it very much does frame itself and see itself as a commercial actor, despite being a state-owned policy bank. So just in so much of Chinese economic activity, um, there is just this slight uncertainty about whether certain actors are state actors or non-state actors. And um, it very much often actually depends on the context, I think. So Pippa, may I um, take us uh, down into the granular details for a bit as we're, we're coming to the end of our time uh, about how you envision 
the debt restructuring for Zambia to proceed, uh, particularly in terms of this political battle between uh, the private creditors and the Chinese institutions that have been involved in Zambia. And of course, the, the specific history of the Zambia-China relationship probably plays into this? That's a, a very good question. Um, so one of the features of um, the recent, uh, what seems to be happening in Zambia um, with in relating to the, the COVID-19 relief is that China is kind of ignoring this pressure to, to open the books and it is negotiating kind of in a closed door way. But those discussions between China and Zambia, at least, do seem to be kind of bearing fruit. So um, in October 2020, for example, uh, the Zambian Treasury Secretary announced that um, the China Development Bank, so this kind of commercially oriented policy bank, um, had deferred its, its um, debt repayments until April 2021. The China Export-Import Bank has also deferred um, debt repayments in Zambia. As for how the private sector is, is going to treat this, I, I really don't know, to be honest. Um, I, I am not, um, I wouldn't count myself as a, as a kind of expert on um, what the, the private creditors are, are going to do and whether or not they're going to um, continue kind of shouting at China for not being transparent or, or come around. Um, it's, it's not something I'm really sure about, to be honest. Well, Pipik, maybe I can squeeze one last question in before we, we close the episode. Um, and uh, I'm gonna link back, I think, to a topic we had sort of briefly touched on earlier in the the podcast and, and I'm, uh, I'm gonna take us away from Zambia for um, uh, in doing it um, so that there's a sense that um, some discussions of China's lending in the developing world kind of invoke this sort of new the idea that this is a, a different version of um, financial imperialism. This is a, certainly a, a common uh, theme in some of the Western uh, press reports. And in particular, um, so for instance, the Hamamboda port, the Habitoda port in Sri Lanka is often cited as an example of, you know, the, the Chinese lending is um, a subtext for territorial gain for um, sort of broader geopolitical and strategic interests. And I'm wondering if you can kind of take us out with just sort of a, a discussion of that criticism. I mean, you know, part of me sort of is inclined to say like, well, yeah, this is um, government's lend for reasons and the history of state-sponsored lending is not a, an especially pretty one. Um, 
on the other hand, you know, we, we hopefully are, are moving into an era where really crassly motivated uh, lending that's designed for pure pure strategic gain is disfavored. So I, I'm wondering what your sense is of the Belt and Road Initiative in particular, and of this criticism that Chinese lending is really just thinly disguised imperialism. Thanks. That's a very uh, big and important question. Um, I will try to be as brief as possible in my answer. So on the first part, um, it, at first, I, I think there are multiple ways to define this idea of kind of new imperialism. So some people will conceive of it as kind of very, very broadly as China is trying to increase its cultural influence and its soft power. And China is trying to promote um, you know, its soft power and, and gain, um, you know, for example, promote Chinese culture, promote Chinese language, um, and in turn, uh, promote Chinese interests through that. But as you said, the term is generally used to imply that China is trying to use its overseas lending to gain political control over the domestic affairs of African states or to gain strategic assets or territory. And I think this is highly, this idea is highly misleading. Um, so the first thing to say is China's contention that it doesn't use its development finance to interfere in its borrowers' domestic politics is real. Um, and the contrast of, with Western donors is something that officials in borrower countries have, have you know, often relayed to me. Um, and China, of course, has a strong practical interest in maintaining the principle that states are sovereign and shouldn't interfere in others' domestic politics. For example, to deflect international criticism of its own domestic behavior. And more broadly, I think that um, comparing the actual experience of European colonialism on the African continent. So forcible annexation of territory and violent subjugation of local populations to take that as colonialism and then apply a term like neo-colonialism to, to kind of suggest that there's some kind of parallel with uh, Chinese development finance, which of course is agreed with the partner country and generally welcomed by them, is, is frankly, um, well, a bit of a stretch to put it mildly. Um, you mentioned the, the port in Sri Lanka. Um, so there seems to be a media frenzy that Sri Lanka couldn't afford to pay Chinese debt and then it was forced to give China a port, which is part of its territory. Um, and this was reality, all the plan from the outset, right? The yes, exactly, of course. <laughs> no, um, you know, the Sri Lankan government ran into repayment difficulties and chose to lease, not sell, the port to a Chinese company um, to, uh, to get further support for its public finances. And China hasn't really made similar, these kind of similar deals again, given all the trouble that one caused. Um, I doubt they will. And more broadly, if you look at academic analysis of um, what China tends to respond to do, tends to respond to, at, sorry, tends to do in response to debt distress based on, you know, lots more data points than just one port, China typically um, renegotiates the terms. So rather than plotting these kind of debt traps, it's a problem for China when countries can't repay their loans. It's not a situation that they want to create. And the idea that um, China is, is giving finance in a, 
you know, strategically to try to um, get countries into trouble and then take their assets is, is kind of ridiculous, in, in my opinion. Well, thank you so much, Pippa. It's been really a pleasure to have you. Um, and uh, thank you for filling at least some of the gaps, many, many gaps in my own knowledge of Chinese lending practices. But um, it, it's, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. It was really nice to, uh, to speak with you.